So my father has got enough vinyl records to be in a $700,000 room. This is the absurdity of space. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help crack the code of real estate wealth. Today on the show, we're going to talk about one of my favorite economies of all time, my number one economy, the place economy. We're actually going to delve into space, and I don't mean the out-of-kind version, and place. What it actually means for people who, of course, are housed in real estate. Are there more significant areas than others which actually stand out from the crowd when it comes to owning real estate, being an investor, and, of course, housing beautiful people in our big cities around Australia? So I tell you what, if you like the idea of understanding trends and influences, this episode's for you. Place and Space, the Urban Explanation of Property and Place Economics. I'm going to talk you through it. If we haven't met before, I'm your host, Sam Saggers. And I tell you what, if you missed last podcast, go back and have a listen to it because we discussed the idea of transformation through gentrification which is a location strategy of creating capital growth. We're going to dig into that a little bit deeper on this episode. We're going to talk about why places that are transforming attract certain people and, of course, create results for real estate investors. We're going to go into the idea that desire lines transform society. They always have They always will. And as a property investor, we want desire lines impacting our real estate. We will discuss on this episode space, design, place, incomes, and of course, the economy of place economics. So let's get into it. I tell you what, for me, desire lines are a big factor in how I invest. Desire lines are evident almost everywhere around society. If we can find some trends and influences on what people are thinking about, what people truly want, what creates happiness, we're going to make money out of real estate. Think about some desire lines perhaps in your area. For me, I've got a a real simple one. I live really close to a beach. To get to the beach, the council have created like this nice little paved walkway, but it isn't the most direct route. So people of the neighborhood have kind of like squashed a garden bed and we all walk through this squashed garden bed to get to the beach because it's the quickest route. It's our desire line to get to the water. Desire lines transform everything. Human beings have always created desire lines, a quick way to get a result or the most exciting way to get somewhere 
or the best place that most people want to live. Desire lines are in economics everywhere. Here's a crazy desire line. I think it's the best desire line of real estate. In Scotland, people get to paint their door red if they're debt-free, mortgage-free. Imagine that. Imagine we lived in a society where a red door meant you're financially free. I tell you what, I'm sure there's a few Scottish lags pretending to be debt-free, painting their door to try and get a shag or two. But I tell you what, the idea is awesome. It is a great concept of a desire line. See, there are established desire lines, I think, as a property investor. If you think about what desire lines are pretty normal to, to us as property investors, we love, what do we love? We love manufacturing equity. Everyone loves the idea of like buying something and instantly getting some gratification out of it, like some wealth straight away, doing the rehab, doing the reno, subdividing, buying at a discount. We love manufacturing equity. We also love, as an established desire line in real estate, cash flow, capital growth. There's always that sort of argument, you know, should you buy a growth property? Should you buy a cash flow property? Well, today, actually, interesting enough, I think the best hybrid of a growth and cash flow property is place economics. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about you know, what it really is and, and what real estate looks like in a place economic area. There are evolving desire lines and they also do relate to the idea of place economics. Evolving desire lines as a property investor are things like having a semi-owner occupied piece of real estate, being a bit of a nomad, living between cities, having properties which you can use on say the shared economy like Airbnb, that you use a couple of days uh, a week, but then transfer them to another property and sort of live this kind of like nomadic lifestyle. Uh, I'm a bit of a nomad. I actually am a business Bedouin. I travel typically between states quite often. Uh, obviously, coronavirus has come along and paused that for the medium term or short term. But eventually when there's a cure or we work out how to behave, I'll go back to my life as being a nomad. I love going and living in my apartment in Brisbane and then renting it out short term on Airbnb when I'm not using it. The idea of desire lines are changing and they really do play around the idea that place economy suburbs, and I'll explain what that is, a little bit later, really do fit into the modern version of the fourth industrial economy. They absolutely work for today's world. We are seeing the change of desire lines around buying some assets which we can use later in life. A lot of property investors don't map out how to be a property investor. They start on a journey, they love the idea of being a property investor, they like buying real estate. But sometimes they don't map out that actually you could buy a property today 30 years before you live in it. And actually, this is an awesome desire line which I'm starting to see people do. People are starting to go, you know what, 
makes a lot of economic sense to buy my retirement downsides of property today in a suburb which I can only dream of living in now but if I put my footprint in as an investor because I get the rental returns I can own my later in life property. We are global citizens today. We are absolutely capable for the most part for many people living in parallel places. And I love this about real estate because the one thing I've hated about being a property investor for the last 25 years is probably the first half of that was buying real estate in areas which I would never ever go to or never live in. Today, the polar opposite. Today, you can buy real estate in areas you feel really, really uh, comfortable about but also areas which are fun, up and coming, emerging, and you can also use them as a global citizen using the shared economy, things like platforms like Stays and Airbnb and all these cool ways of, of looking, at, uh, looking at real estate and doing it as a property investor. See, there is this constant battle over space or a large property in perhaps an outer area where it's more affordable to be a property investor versus location. I mean, what is better? What do you think? I know what I think. And I believe that location and livability is a big metric today. And you can overcome not having a large property in a more popular area by the concept of what is known as the third place. The third place is simply buying a property where people who get to live in that property live in their first place, which is their apartment or house or townhouse. They get to live in their second place, which is their backyard, balcony or courtyard. But they also have a third place, which is the neighbourhood. And the neighbourhood is really, really important today. I think if coronavirus has taught people anything, it's taught most people, particularly home buyers, that neighbourhood matter. The neighbourhood matters, right? If you can walk out of your street and you're 100 metres from the beach or 200 metres from the coffee shop, or 300 metres from the beautiful park to go and sit at, all of a sudden, the third place is so important. I've always invested based around the third place. I've seen real estate in my own portfolio skyrocket in value, not because of the first place or the second place, but because of the third place, place economics. Now, in real estate, there are certain neighbourhoods where the third place is ultimately the best. I'm going to explain to you how those areas are hotspots for property investors. But I think we need to understand space before we actually understand place. Yes, space. And as I alluded to, not the out-of-kind version, I'm talking about the property version, space. Do we need as much space 
as we once did. I mean, we've all heard of the tiny house movement. Is it real? Is it defeated because of coronavirus? Or is there a transformation still going to unfold? And I think the digital world is really transforming real estate. See, I love learning from elder people. I think, you know, I think prime ministers of Australia should be at least 70 years old because old people or elderly people are so goddamn wise. They know so much, they've seen so much. And I think the idea of learning from more mature people, it's just incredible. I love learning from my dad. You know, my dad lives in a seven bedroom home and his house is like full of so much stuff. It's like a museum. You go in there and like, you can see stuff from 1955 and you can pick up a pot and you're like, wow, this is a weird pot. Where does this weird pot come from? And it's like, this was in Britain in 1963. Or you'll pick up a Buddha and you're like, dad, where's this Buddha come from? And he'll be like, I bought that Buddha in Indonesia in 1971. My dad's house is full of weird pots and Buddhas and statues and you name it. There's a lot of clutter. And it's so fascinating that my father is a creature of a bygone era. See, when my father was raised in Australia. He was raised around the notion you needed a lot of space because you collected things. See, today, you don't need to hold a Buddha in your hand if you want to be Buddhistic. I don't know if that's a word, but if you want to Buddha, you can just Google Buddha. Or you could do a podcast with like Buddhism or you could listen to some, you know, type of music from the Buddha world, right? The idea though that we all of a sudden need all this stuff is diminishing. So the argument is, well, do we need such big houses because we don't actually need the stuff that my dad once needed? My dad always said like, in 1973, the only way to see a Buddha was to buy a Buddha and bring it back and put it in your house. That was it. Short of a photograph, there was no such thing as the internet. You couldn't Google Buddha. You needed Buddha in your house. See, today a lot of elderly people are living in big houses in Australia full of clutter and stuff. And a lot of younger people are living a sleeker, more minimalist lifestyle, meaning they don't need the big six or seven bedroom home. They might need a family home, but a much smaller version. Or if they're single or coupled up or not even having children, potentially just a townhouse or a really cool apartment, right? My dad won't downsize. He's like a militant against leaving this environment because he never learnt to associate himself with digital. He's associated with physical world. You know, 
my dad won't fix his roof of his house. It's like $100,000 to fix the roof of his house. Every time it rains, he runs around with buckets catching water. This is the mentality of someone who grew up in a different era. Today, most people wouldn't live in a house catching water in a bucket full of clutter. They would think of a different, more convenient less hands-on approach to living in a property. Coronavirus is changing a few things. And it's interesting, you know, one could argue we've gone back 50 years. Instead of going out to the restaurant right now, we're eating at home, we're uh, connecting with our loved ones, like in a probably more detailed manner than in the fast-paced world of before. And there's a lot of studies around this. I mean, if you go to small, weird little Greek villages where there's nothing to do if you're traveling through Europe, people tend to talk and communicate and, you know, stick around and they're a bit slower. If you go to a country town in Australia, everyone's slow, talking slow, because there's not much to do, right? And you kind of find this dynamic of people get to know each other. See, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, people didn't go to restaurants and cafes for avocado on toast. They invited people to their home. The entertainment was very much home-based. And of course, that's really evolved. And even with coronavirus, we're not going back to home-based entertainment. Restaurants will flourish again one day. People will continue and enjoy their avocado on toast because society has been retrained to be quite social in places and it's those social places I'm interested in from a real estate perspective. For me, Australians and Kiwis, we live in some of the biggest houses today in the world. Most people don't live in the properties that Australians or Kiwis live in. If you go to Japan, the average house size is small, like the footprint is little. In Europe, they are tiny houses. So even though we feel like we're building tiny houses, I know there's like little properties you see on TV, which are basically, I don't know, like a, they're sort of like a little caravan. Most houses in Australia are still pretty big by world standards, but remember, Space is changing. So all of a sudden, we don't need space for physical things. We need space potentially for us, but not for stuff. You know, my old man, he is a bit of a music man. He loves playing records. And he's got about 3,000 vinyl records in one of his bedrooms. Uh, actually, it's a pretty big room. It's probably the size of a one-bedroom apartment. In the suburb where that property is, a one-bedroom apartment would be $700,000. So my father has got enough vinyl records to be in a $700,000 room. This is the absurdity of space. See, he doesn't need a $700,000 piece of space to house 3,000 vinyl records. He just needs an iPhone and Spotify. So 
we today can live completely differently to once what was the norm. We, if we want 3,000 vinyl records, just simply pull out our iPhone and go for it, right? We listen to music. So the idea that you would pay that $700,000 for that space is absurd today. It's just not needed. So we can go on a little bit of a desire line route with this logic. We know that too much space is actually great in theory, but is it worth paying for? Is it worth paying $700,000 for that extra room which you put vinyl records in when today you don't need it, right? You play Spotify. See, my old man, this house, I'd love to invite you all over. We've got to go over and um, see mum and dad. They still have Australia's first colour TV, the Rank Arena. Now, have you ever seen the Rank Arena... It is the size of a small car. In fact, it looks like the new little Fiat that drives around. Have you seen that new little weird Fiat that drives around? This is the Rank Arena. So you go into the lounge room, and the lounge room's basically taken up by a television. That's how big TVs used to be. Today, of course... Do we really need a TV the size of a Fiat motor car? Well, the answer, of course, is not. No, we can use our iPhone, we can use a laptop, and, of course, sleek television stuck on a wall all of a sudden creates an energy around we don't need as much space as advertised. And... There are some conversations which are circulating around, well, we, because of coronavirus, are going to charge out of the cities and all go and live where there's huge amounts of open space. And no doubt there are some people who will do that. But deep down, at the end of the day, Australia has great commerce in cities. It has great things in cities it's fun and people actually don't need the space they once did you could even argue that today you don't even need a car right if you live in the right neighborhood you can uber you can uh just simply literally have your own limousine concept and uber about far cheaper than you can uh with a car like owning it right so we need to understand things are changing real estate is changing property investment is morphing and today space is absolutely transforming society so it's pretty cool now Hopefully this guy doesn't ring the buzzer. I've got a bloke rocking up, chucking something in my letterbox. So right now, I work from home, which is a new COVID dynamic. But will people work from home constantly where space is morphing? 
well, I think we can all agree that some of the large corporations are not going to work from home. Goldman Sachs is not going to work from home. They might temporarily, but long-term, it's not viable. American Express is not going to work from home. Engineering companies are not going to work from home. All of a sudden, the idea of this desire line transformation is for a smaller percentage of people. But I do believe that the desire line change is going to be predominantly around the third space. And for me, place economic neighbourhoods have a great third space. The idea that you don't have to cook at home, you can go to your third space. You can go outside and barbecue. You can go into the street and go to the coffee shops and bars. The third space is a really important dynamic of real estate. Place economic neighbourhoods do have some of the best third space desire line concepts. The idea that an area is in vogue by virtue of its third space. Remember, first space, the house, the apartment, the unit, the townhouse. The second space is your outdoor area, your balcony, uh, your courtyard, your backyard. And your third space is what you live or how you live locally. It's your point of reference. So place economic neighbourhoods have a very good point of reference. And because a lot of our cities are based around financial services and government, you won't see this kind of end of the cool suburb which is in your big city. Collingwood's going to be cool. Surrey Hills is still going to be cool. Braddon in the ACT is going to be the place to be. New Farm in Brisbane is going to be cool. The desire line will continue for place economy neighbourhoods. So what is place economics? We understand that space is changing. We get that bit. It's easy to comprehend that we don't need as big a property as what we would think. And because real estate is expensive, the debt bomb of doing what my dad has, who bought real estate for a can of Coke 50 years ago, 3,000 vinyl records in a one-bedroom apartment, I mean, that's just ridiculous. People don't need to pay it. So one of the conversations, I think, which is an interesting one, is the affordability of real estate. Real estate is expensive in Australia. We have some of the most expensive properties. Sydney is the second most expensive city in the world. So you either live in a really good part of Sydney and have less space, but do you need more? Or if you do, you've got to then consider alternatives. That could be a less impressive part of Sydney or... What I believe is the idea that people will go finding place. Pl 
place. Now, let me explain place to you. In Spain, there is a very innocuous city, a place called Bilbao. For 50 years, tourists never went to Bilbao. They would go everywhere, but they would go the running of the bulls in Pamplona. They would go to San Sebastian and, and eat great tapas. They would go to Barcelona, Madrid, Sevilla, but they would not enter the great city of Bilbao. So town planners and city planners of Bilbao decided to do something about that. They decided to engage a really interesting architect and build what today is one of the most interesting buildings of them all, the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim is full of great art, it's full of colour, it's full of atmosphere and architecturally it is like the Sydney Opera House. The Guggenheim transformed the economic proposition of Bilbao. Today, people who travel Europe, who want to be part of the arts community, go to the Louvre in France, in Paris, and Bilbao in Spain. The economic proposition of that place making object, the Guggenheim, transformed the city's economy. Again, tourists from all over the world now go to this city just to experience this particular art gallery. Placemaking. So placemaking happens at a city level, but it also happens at a suburb level. And if we can find that city and that suburb where the economy is transforming, we can make money. And obviously, as a property investor, our goal is to make money. Placemaking is real. And here in Australia, you can see it firsthand, the Guggenheim effect, the Bilbao effect happened in Hobart. Hobart was a pretty boring place for a lot of people. There was nothing to do there other than go to Salamanca markets and buy weird jam and go and have like a weird pie. There was nothing to do. All of a sudden, placemakers thought through it, great entrepreneurs, they built Mona. If you've not been to Mona, well, you haven't lived. Go to Mona in Hobart. It is freaking awesome. It's famous for the Great Wall of Vaginas. If you want to see every single vagina ever created in the world, you can go to Mona. Check it out. It is cool, man. It is like this bunker of art. And the economic proposition that created for Hobart transformed Hobart. And you saw that through Airbnb. Airbnb grabbed on to the idea that all of a sudden, if you travel to Hobart, you could do Salamanca markets, buy the weird jam, have the weird pie. Then you stayed overnight. Then you went to Mona, did Mona, created a great day out, um, checked out uh, all the great artwork, the great wall of vaginas. Then you stayed the night. Then you went out and did like Port Arthur, had a look around at the convict settlements of, of early, uh, early pioneers into, into Tasmania. So 
you were getting like these two or three or four day stays in Hobart. And lo and behold, there wasn't enough hotels in Hobart. So people Airbnb their property and made a fortune. Economics via place making. And again, today, the best suburbs for Airbnb are also place suburbs. There is a purpose to going there. There's a purpose to staying there. People aren't going to leave them and go and live in a weird little town with nothing going for it because these are the places where culture meets economics. If you want to know where someone earning $200,000 a year lives, they generally live if they're up and coming, if they're working for ASX Top 200 Bank, or sorry, company in Australia, they're living in a desire line neighbourhood, a place economy neighbourhood. Place economy neighbourhoods are undersupplied neighbourhood when it comes to the overall suburb capacity of a city. Let's say there's 300 suburbs in Melbourne, 300 in Sydney, 250 in Brisbane. Here's the place suburbs probably about 10 in each of those cities. 10 areas where people want to go to for activities, to be social, which have this like cool image that have access to uh, great fun bars and cafes or things to do. They are sociable neighbourhoods. If you're on a Tinder date, you do not go to weird, sleepy suburb to go out. You won't get far if you take your date to a sleepy, dormant neighbourhood. In fact, if you took a girl to a sleepy, dormant neighbourhood, she'd probably think you're a crazy person. She'd probably run or SOS her mate or whatever. You've got to meet the lovely lady or the lovely fellow, whatever it is, at a place at an image-based area. That is places of interest. If you want to meet someone, you suggest an area to go out, have dinner, have, have uh, a cocktail. So all of a sudden, there are suburbs which are based on the Guggenheim effect, places. And here in Australia, we have some really cool place suburbs which from a capital growth point of view do really well, from a desire line point of view of living differently are amazing, from a rental point of view they get really strong yields, but also they marry up to the idea of potentially using the shared economy to Airbnb properties, which I understand with coronavirus right now, you know, isn't going to happen for the most part. But that'll be over and people will travel again. And Airbnb will be as good as it was prior to coronavirus, if not better. All of a sudden, there'll probably be a travel boom down the track because everyone's had to stay where they are or stay put too, too long. So desire line neighbourhoods are strong. Now, I probably mentioned this in the last podcast – Bondi is the number one place economy neighbourhood of Australia. You can get a Bondi burger, have 
you know, a Bondi haircut. You can watch the Bondi vet on television. You can go and get rescued by Bondi lifeguards and be on TV. Bondi is a brand. It is a brand which has gone global. People, people know it. Australia's place economy brands, Byron Bay, Bondi, these are neighbourhoods where you actually associate wealth and image. It's kind of like the Beverly Hills 90210 concept, if anyone was raised in the 80s and 90s and you saw the brand of that neighbourhood, 90210, it was kind of this image of success. And of course, if you study the people that live in Bondi, for the most part, other than sort of tourists and backpackers, the weird Brazilian surfer passing through, you've got wealthy people who pay big rents. You've got corporates, you've got financial services workers, you've got knowledge workers that can work off a laptop and sit down at the beach, you've got a big array of financial support in that neighbourhood. Economically speaking, people in that neighbourhood earn more than the bulk of society. So they pay more rent and, of course, they push the property values up in that neighbourhood. In economics, I label it the Messina ice cream effect. Now, Messina is a pretty incredible ice cream brand and it's kind of like this cool brand that people who Instagram a lot want to, you know, be associated with. We've been through a lot of economic effects. We've had the soy latte effect. We've had the almond latte effect. We are now up to the Messina ice cream dynamic, right? If you can find a suburb which has Messina ice cream shop in it, you're probably going to find the type of energy that creates a beautiful place, a place where people want to be seen, an area where real estate values generally grow exponentially. Bondi, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was a shithole. It was a dump. And it was dangerous. Like, you'd go down there and, like, people would try and kung fu fight you. You would walk down the main street of Bondi and you'd get kung fu fight. I mean, what was going on? Like, people would try and bottle you with a glass. It wasn't what it is today. Anyone who's been in Sydney a long time would probably understand there was a bit of thuggery going on down in Bondi. Yeah, the Bondi boys, they were like, uh, they were like some sort of... Uh, you know, gangster crew, they'd like try and fight you and shit. They're like, go, I don't, I'm not going to Bondi. Those Bondi guys will try and fight you. So today it's the polar opposite. It's kind of like cool. It's on TV. It's, it's been gentrified and now it's turbo gentrified and it is the place to be. Bondi is the number one place economy, but there are others. And I'll rattle off a few names so you kind of get the logic. Surrey Hills, uh, Darlinghurst, uh, you've got other places in, say, Melbourne, you've got you know, Fitzroy and Collingwood and Carlton. I mean, these are cool, uber-chic areas. If you want a $4,000 suit 
you go to Gertrude Street Fitzroy for a $4,000 suit and you buy it off a dude that looks like he's homeless. This is place economy areas. The underbelly is grunge, but really deep down, it is absolutely wealth at its best. It's wealth not giving a shit. Again, the people who live in Bondi work at ASX top 200 companies in the CBD. They don't need to move to uh, Humpty Doo to get a better life. They are living the dream already. Place suburbs. In Brisbane, you got like, I don't know, t- New Farm, Tenerife. These are cool areas, man. Like, they have some of the best, most fun social connections in the city of Brisbane. Go to Howard Smith Wharfs. It is ripping. You can take your kids down there. You've got like a cool uh, vibe of, of atmosphere. And of course, what that does is it creates social connection. Now, one of the things that we don't talk about about coronavirus is the lack of social connection. People like hanging out with other people. I think the idea that we all want to be hermits is a little bit flawed. I think the polar opposite, if anything, we want to go out and mingle. We want to return life to what it once was. Now, I tell you what, place economy neighbourhoods will go up in value, and I invest in them heavily. I'm pro-place economy suburbs. As I said, it's probably like 300 suburbs in a big city. There's probably only 10, which are place suburbs. My closest place suburb to where I live is Manly. Uh, I live two suburbs away from Manly on another beach, but my suburb's a bit sort of fuddy-duddy and old, like there's like, like it's, it's kind of like more mature. And if I want to have fun, I go to Manly. And of course, Manly Beach is famous. It's a bit like Bondi. Not as cool as Bondi, but it's kind of like up there, right? So a lot of people come on the ferry each day and they enjoy the place and then they leave. And then there's people who stay and they own real estate, which goes up in value. They own real estate that really is a lifestyle precinct. They own real estate that most people would trade their real estate to come and live in if they could afford it. So the idea, of course, with being a place investor is that perhaps you can't afford the Bondi today and I can't afford Bondi. It's ridiculous. I wouldn't buy there. I'm buying someone else's capital growth. But even if I did buy there, it would still grow in value. It will because there's only one Bondi. There's only one Manly. There's plenty of other suburbs, but there's only one of them. And... As Sydney becomes a bigger, bigger city, as more people come to it because jobs are here, uh, because there's economic certainty in cities, Bondi will become more expensive. There's no doubt about it. Today, though, I'm investing in Bondi, which was 10 years ago, half the price. I'm generally doing that in Melbourne and Brisbane because they are in their life cycle just a little little more immature than, say, Sydney. And of course, I've invested in the Manly Precinct, which is a great place precinct as well. 
But what you'll find in Manly is typically Gen Y and Baby Boomer go head to head. It's kind of like this weird demographic of like older people going, you know what, we got money, we got cash. Let's go and live the cool lifestyle the last 20 years of our life. Let's go and enjoy the beach and bars and cafes. Then you've got Gen Y who are like borrowing money off their more wealthy parents to secure assets in the place neighbourhoods. And they're basically going to auction and you see this kind of two-person bidder, the millennial versus the baby boomer. Quite often the baby boomer wins because the baby boomer isn't borrowing money, but millennials holding their own, getting into these place suburbs where they're not looking for the biggest place in the world. They're not looking for like a five-bedroom home. They're buying two and three uh, bedroom apartments or smaller houses, old school, like terraces and things like that, because you don't need a one-bedroom apartment with 3,000 vinyl records or your 1972 Buddha. You just Google Buddha. So third place, though, is what they're buying. And the third place of Manly is great, right? Like, remember your first place is your house or your apartment. Second place, your balcony or your backyard. Third place for people in Manly is the beach and the coffee shops. So you can see the context. In Fitzroy, it's Gertrude Street, Smith Street. It's uh, cool bars. It's, it's, it's iconic Melbourne. Melbourne's grungy, right? In Brisbane, it's the river, it's the river parks, it's the cool bars, right? This is the idea of place economics. That the third space is actually just as valuable as a dormitory suburb where people like literally go there to sleep, but there's nothing else to do. So a lot of the argument is those neighbourhoods have good first and second place, but really low third place dynamics and if you go further and further out you then have no third place and quite often your first and second place isn't so much fun as well so we know that the skilled jobs generally love living in place orientated suburbs but we also know that people in those suburbs don't really have a mobility issue now, I think the coronavirus dynamic of mobility is a big conversation because the argument is, well, uh, you know, if I have to travel an hour each day, you know, and I now I don't have to do that, you know, will I work from home? Well, what if you've always been working from home and or you're a $10 ride into the office? The mobility issue for place economics isn't an issue because you're either walking, you're tramming, you're cycling and or you're Ubering to wherever you want to go. You do not have a mobility constraint in place economic neighbourhoods. Now, I do agree there's going to be a, some weird apartment somewhere on a main road you know, on Parramatta Road, Sydney, where people are like waking up going, I cannot do lockdown in this shithole. I need to get out of this apartment, go buy me a house. But in place economic areas where 
you know, typically maybe an entry level property is like five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars. Those locations have good third party or third places. They have good outdoor areas, but then they also have good mobility score, so people can get around. So there is not this like frustration to flee the nest and and the idea that they will somehow fall out of vogue in replace of you know a little village with some cows or something not going to happen not going to happen the idea of economics will be big goldman sachs will be goldman sachs westpac bank will be westpac bank American Express will be American Express. These are the financial pillars of a big Australia. Big Australian companies, uh, you know, have, have, have dynamics around them where people need to live quite close to those areas. Smaller companies like mine, I can work from home, but I'm a small fish and, you know, I work direct alongside the people I work with. So for us, the transformation of that office space is a little bit different to trying to be noted in a big company, which of course make up a lot of uh, you know, the areas around CBDs and so forth. So I tell you what, we know there's going to be, I guess, stagnant wage growth for a, quite a long time. We know that investing is so important for us to replace our income. The idea of real estate is without question, first rule, don't lose money. For me, I really love investing in place economy suburbs. And I'll tell you why I do. First rule, you don't lose money generally because the people in those neighbourhoods have a very good affluence score. They're quite wealthy and they'll continue to be wealthy. Second reason is the place to be and if people leave more people will take their position and buy up those neighborhoods because they offer a big livability score they're mobile they're fast and they have a good third place where people can go and hang out whether that's the beach or the coffee shop or just somewhere outside of the primary first or second place so hey I hope you've enjoyed the show. I've certainly loved bringing it to you. Really do hope you've enjoyed learning about place economics. It's one of the things I love talking about the most. The secret urbanity lover. Hey, if you've enjoyed the show, make sure you give me a bit of a plug. Uh, give me a five-star review if you like this episode. Hey, until next time, I'm going to sign off. But thank you so much for listening. I will catch you next time on the Urban Property Investor. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.